Hi, and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and today I'm joined by security experts Mike Buckby, Chris Kaiser, and Mike Thompson. Hey, guys. Hey, Cindy. Hello. Hey, Cindy. At a recent security conference, there was a keynote speaker who suggested that like doctors, we need to work more closely together to create security solutions. And it got me to thinking about the Hippocratic Oath doctors take when they first enter medical school. And the oath requires doctors to uphold certain ethical standards, primarily the oath, do no harm. And so we talk a lot about the good and bad things you can do potentially as technologists. And I wonder what your thoughts are when it comes to technologists possibly having a do no harm oath. And I bring this up because there is an article about programmers where they had to do for their job and ethical things. And there was a really poignant quote. Unfortunately, many of today's software developers are self-taught or are learning through coding boot camps, and these are rarely, if ever, included any kind of ethics training. The focus is on pumping out people who can write code as fast as possible to satisfy a growing and insatiable market for coding skills. And so we talk a lot about balancing security with precaution and a healthy amount of paranoia. What is the balance of ethics and execution and getting things done, guys? Uh, I think it's a really tough balance, and it really comes to all aspects of the technology industry. I mean, obviously, this article that you've brought up is about programming and coding and making sure that you're you know, implementing something that is secure for both the organization that you're working for as well as the end user. But you know, this comes to uh, from a company uh, level in terms of strategy to an individual level. And not just programming, but, you know, IT professionals as well. You know, I used to work in man- for a managed services provider, and I would get asked to do questionable stuff sometimes, you know, potentially stuff that fell into maybe the realm of like e-discovery that really shouldn't be within my level of responsibility. But, you know, people are always looking for shortcuts, unfortunately. And the downside of that in technology is shortcuts lead to lapses in security. I think there's an interesting part of this, which is that, like we do, we talk about different kind of crimes, like we have like property and violent crime and white collar crime, and there's cyber crime as well. And people have different mental models of what's acceptable in these different areas. In part, I'm thinking about like we recently had a SQL injection article that we put up on the blog, and we actually started it off with like you probably don't think of like adding a few extra characters to the end of a URL as like you know felony criminal trespass, but it totally could be if you're doing a SQL injection attack on some website and it reveals something, but people don't think of it that way. So it's just interesting, the categorizations of this stuff. So uh, you bring up a good point is like, you don't think of that way. Who does think of it that way? You know, for something like we brought up the Hippocratic Oath in the medical industry, there's obviously tight regulations. What qualifies as a, as a HIPAA violation? What's a violation for the doctor? But who, who's making that decision in the technology industry? Certainly there's certain regulations, but not to say that they're applied equally or that everyone takes them into consideration. When I was reading this article, I, I kind of got this idea of kind of drawing the parallel between engineers that work in the physical space and engineers that work in the digital space. The fact that an engineer who or somebody you know who builds a house and builds a faulty house with poorly designed structures or, or a horrible locking system, there would be repercussions for that. If the house were to collapse, if uh, you know, somebody would be harmed because somebody broke in, 
I don't think people have realized that there is a parallel between that and the digital space where if somebody builds a some piece of software that's intended to keep secure data secure and it fails, similar repercussions can be had. You're not going to get crushed by a house, but somebody's livelihood could be ruined by identity theft. Someone's personal identification information could be stolen. There are similar repercussions to that level of failure in engineering. I think that eventually with what's happening in the world today with, with breaches and all that, we're going to eventually come around to seeing that there, there's just a lot of similarities there and the same sort of care should be taken on that side of things as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, w- one of the things that I, I kind of scares me is, you know, I, I feel like probably organizations, companies that are, are in charge of, of securing these things, of putting out safe products, you know, making sure that they are uh, not doing anything unethical. They still have to worry about their bottom line. They're still worried about money. They're worried about their shareholders if they're a public company. And that might change the angle of attack. They might, certain companies have gotten maybe more aggressive with the personal information they collect over time, Google being one of them. And Google's famously, their, what's their motto? Do no evil or, or something <laughs> something along those lines. But I guess what's evil, what's unethical is, is up for debate in this in this area. I find the intersection between wearables, HIPAA, and, and technology, that's going to be really interesting too because the health data collected when you create a new wearable or Internet of Thing device isn't protected under HIPAA. So we're going to see what's going to happen in the upcoming years. But I just I thought it'd be interesting to at least talk about it and see what you guys thought. Let's talk about the most recent security news. One of the biggest news story recently was that the San Francisco Muni, it was hit with ransomware. And it turns out there was a security researcher who hacked the hacker after reading about the incident. And he was able to uncover a few things about the cyber criminal that that person extorted at least $140,000 in Bitcoin. The white hatter also was easily able to guess the hackers resetting his password question. And then he used that same answer for another account. And so one hacker used his skill set to extort money. Another hacker, uh, a white hatter, used his skill set to get more information. Uh, What were some of the most interesting things you guys thought about this case? There's a lot going on. Well, I think the first thing I think is actually that, like how you described it is probably, and I'm not a lawyer, I think they're probably both um, potentially guilty, though with different sets of damages in terms of, you know, hacking into systems, that vigilante uh, type behavior. I'm not saying I'm not appreciative, but I I do worry almost for, for this person having taken that. And that's come up before. Like there's been instances where there's all sorts of horrible bots on the internet that will just go around and, you know, poke at systems and try to find exploits in them. And then someone wrote something that went and like patched them all up and they also got in trouble. So, you know, it's, it's hard to know who's doing the right thing there. There were two things about this that really stood out to me. The first being that, you know, this researcher discovered that, you know, maybe SF Muni was not specifically targeted and, you know, talking to different IT professionals in, in various roles, I, I've sometimes heard that, you know, they're not too worried about certain types of attacks, you know, CryptoLocker being one of them, because they, they think they're not a worthy target, essentially. They're like, oh, we're, we're, you know, we're a small company or, you know, there's nothing we have of value. There's no reason someone would target us. They think just, you know, via obscurity 
you know, they're safe, which isn't really true. You know, they're, they're assuming that, that it's a targeted attack rather than something that's going out and looking for vulnerabilities across the entire internet, which is what we saw in this case. Additionally, if it is a targeted attack, then, you know, targeting something like a municipal service is smart business for them. I mean, you know, a, a company may be reluctant to pay a ransom, but if, if you're affecting something in a, a large city where millions of people are being affected by this service being down, you're really putting your, your foot on their throat in terms of getting them to, to act on that ransom. I, I don't know if government procurement for like Bitcoin ransomware is like uh, the best possible, you know, easy money. I'm not, I w- I'm not saying it's easy money. I'm just wondering if, that's, uh, if that type of target maybe introduces different wrinkles in terms of uh, how to respond to it. I wonder if there's actually laws about like not negotiating with terrorists and not paying ransoms for things like I wonder if that comes into play as well. Uh, maybe. I mean, I, I've definitely seen news articles in the past with uh, local police precincts and stuff that didn't have great security and ended up having to pay the ransom to get their files unlocked. They'd probably have to do a risk assessment of the cost of paying versus... That's a very good point. They would definitely have to do a risk assessment and figure out what's going on. I mean, because if your data isn't worth anything or they encrypted the wrong stuff, then there's no point in in paying. Yeah, I mean, this is less about the the hackers themselves, but more about the fact that it's kind of enlightening and scary at the same time to realize that there are devices out there that aren't necessarily thought of as targets. A lot of people don't even know that those are, you know, regular computers running behind the scenes on those those muni terminals. And I think it's one of those things where we're realizing how far these kind of threats can actually reach to the point where it's more than just, oh, hey, my laptop got you know, CryptoLocker or our corporate server got CryptoLocker. No, the devices that we require for you know, physical travel around the world now have you know, ransomware on them. And I, I can't help but wonder if we're going to see more of this in the future, whether it was an unintentional hit or that was a targeted hit, clearly the effect on real life events, it's pretty staggering to see, you know, a, an entire municipal subway system taken down by, by something like this. So uh, I'm just saying I, we're going to see more of this, unfortunately, I think. And we're going to have to figure out how to respond. Yeah, I think a lot of times, what is that catchphrase? Hit and spray or something and see what sticks. Bray and pray. Oh, sorry. (laughs) 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 But I think that's what happens, right? They kind of try it out and see who who clicks on that phishing email and or they open an attachment and a whole bunch of things can go wrong. To be continued, there was a office supply chain that sold fixes for PC infections that uh, didn't exist, and, and they sold that for almost 200 bucks. Uh, what they did is they created a PC health check, and they sold them to uh, consumers who didn't know that their computers are actually broken. But what they found was that the check showed symptoms of malware, but the computers, they were never even connected to the internet. It kind of reminds me of rumors that I've heard over the years about hospitals doing tests you might not need. But the reality is, I I think when doctors are doing it, doing tests, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, like, hey, you know, we should check something out. Do you think that that's the case with this office supply chain where, you know, maybe they're just trying to be overprotective? What are your thoughts on that? It is so hard to tell. Honestly, it's so hard to know what what actually happened. But it's been for sure a long-term scam of a lot of places. 
and this is one of the big concerns. Like people use ad blockers and stuff. It's like, oh, your your PC's infected and you're using a Mac, you know, or you're, you know, you need to run Windows Update, and you know, it's ridiculous. And so, sort of the support scam is a long time con we've all had to sort of deal with. And this seems like another another iteration of that where they've updated it for for ransomware. Yeah, I agree. It's 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 definitely not a a new con to exploit maybe the the less technically minded people and you know use scare tactics to get them to hand over their money for whatever it may be. But you know, I also question what's what's really the best approach. You know, this kind of massive office supply chain that was implicated in this. Are they really able to hire highly technical people, skilled people that would be able to do a better job than some automated tool? Maybe it is a little wide in scope. Maybe it's installing, you know, malware software that's unnecessary and they're getting some sort of kickback for that. But uh, other than being friends with someone who, who who can handle this personally and really give you the personal attention to fix your computer if you have problems, I'm not sure how to get a, a better level of service out of these kind of big box retailers on in that regard. I think it's interesting. We're kind of dealing here with a situation, uh, I guess the term is information asymmetry, where you, they're the ones who can be the the authorities on whether or not you had an infection and you kind of have to trust them if you're not a technically minded person. So it, it's it's a pretty... I guess the word is scummy sort of thing to do here. <laughs> I, I think it's kind of, it's, it's one of those things where you realize that they're probably taking advantage of people who are, are uninformed. They hear a scary word like malware or ransomware and immediately are willing to fork over money for it. Another scummy thing is with five bucks, you can plug a device into a person's USB port, even if it's locked with a strong password and it intercepts all unencrypted web traffic. And then it sends that data to a server under the attacker's control, and then the attacker can also control your the owner's laptop's web browser. And I thought that's, that's a pretty inventive, powerful attack. Your response to this piece, guys? Yeah, it makes me paranoid. <laughs> I guess I've always ascribed to that the idea of locking your computer and, and walking away from it is generally a safe thing to do. I do that in the office. It's one of the policies that we have. My hope is nobody in the office is going to want to do something like this. But I guess when you're out in public, you know, at a coffee shop or something like this, this could be a major source of stress or worry that somebody might have a, I think it's a Raspberry Pi Zero just in their pocket, walk over, pop it in, and and take your machine uh, back quickly. Kind of amazing, actually. I think it's also only five dollars to get like a tube of epoxy that you can just fill up all the USB ports on your uh, <laughs> computer with. Yeah, I was going to say when I've some of the more high security companies I've worked with will implement group policies for exactly that purpose and say either completely disable any USB external devices or say okay, you know, we have a handful of approved devices that can connect anything else like any unapproved USB sticks for example, flash drives, you know, aren't going to mount, we're just not going to allow anything. So I'm not sure if this hack is powerful enough to to bypass those security measures if if those type of group policies are, you know, relevant. And it also seems like the device needs to be stay connected from what I gathered. So, you know, Chris brought up the example of a coffee shop. I'm wondering if, you know, while scary, I think you would notice a Raspberry Pi dangling off the side of your laptop. <laughs> but, point. you know, yeah. in, in, a, in terms of like a reconnaissance, though, if you if you plug that into someone's desktop PC under their desk on, you know, some rear USB port, how likely are they going to to notice that? How how often are people, you know, crawling under their desk to to see What's going on with my ports? Has anything new been plugged in back here? Probably not. Did you guys ever read about the exploit that makes Linux systems vulnerable to attacks and 
you can install keyloggers and other types of malware. I thought that article was pretty interesting. The article was crazy. I don't know if you read the whole thing, like how it actually worked. So it was scriptless. So it wasn't like there was a script that like, you know, you talk about like, oh, it's a PowerShell script that runs or, you know, it's a bash script or it's a little program. What it is, it's an audio file. So with a certain version of GStreamer, which is the media player a lot of Linux distributions use, like desktop Linux distributions, if you play this FLAC file, it rearranges the memory in such a way that you then bypasses a bunch of the, the executable protections because it's actually, I think, using the credentials of the program that's running it instead. Tremendously clever. It basically just makes me think, like, what on earth are these people doing with their time? They're able to figure these things out. Yeah, it seems like this is mostly, you know, theoretical at this point. I, it seems like the, the attack this guy devised is very specific to one specific Linux kernel. But it just as a proof of concept to say, okay, here's something we need to be thinking about that maybe we're not right now. And this is a little off topic, but something that made me think of, you know, one other kind of exploit I've seen that takes place in this manner. And I'm not sure if you guys have ever seen these videos, but there's essentially a, it's called like speed running in video games, people who try and compete and finish a video game as fast as possible. And often what they do is execute these kind of bizarre moves within the video game that do exactly this. They like rewrite the memory, change the rules of the game that allow them to kind of create these exploits. And that's exactly what they're doing. You know, they're completing some series of moves, you know, in Super Mario 64 or something that writes certain bits to the memory and allows them to, you know, bypass features of the game that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. So that's just something that is like, you know, there's certainly people who do that and there's no money to be made in in video game speedrunning, but they put hours and hours and hours of their time into analyzing, you know, how, how can I, you know, break the rules of this game. So it makes sense that someone's doing the exact same thing, but maybe with a more nefarious intent. I think it's actually a great like way to describe these kind of attacks where it is exactly like you're saying, where link will get stuck like halfway in a door that's supposed to keep you out. And if you twist just right, the geometry gets messed up and it flips you to the next level and it only takes 10 seconds to go through. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Are you guys talking about Taskbot by any chance? Cause that's the one that I'm thinking of right now. No, tool-assisted speedrun. Uh, yeah, it's a bot that does exactly that, and it's it's interesting. They've actually taken that, and and this is kind of off topic, I know, but it's kind of exciting because the way that it works with their their crazier stuff is that they'll take it, and instead of abusing the rules of the game, they'll actually just cause the game to crash, reboot it up, and run something completely different, which I think is just a, you know another logical extension of that. So I think it's kind of fascinating to see what you can do with uh, that kind of automation. For our tools for sysadmin segment. Buckbeat, there is, uh, you found a PowerShell tool, Kanza. Can you take us mm-hmm. through that? Sure. So Kanza, this is an open source project, and we'll put the GitHub link into the show notes. But what it is, it's an incident response framework. So if someone attacks your systems, what they want to do is kind of hide and not show, leave fingerprints everywhere. So not show like places that where logs have been modified to show where they entered or what they did and a bunch of other things like that. So once you first become aware of something like this, you need to take some steps to, you know, sort out what happened, when it happened, who's affected, what data is affected, all those things. And cons is something that can really help with that. So it's written in PowerShell. And it lets you basically send out commands across the network in order to pull in a lot of that information. So if you're trying to figure out ahead of time, which you really should, (laughs) what to do when there's an incident in your network, it's a great tool for that. Thanks, Buffy. 
and thanks Thompson, Chris, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you want to follow us on Twitter and find some of the stories we're discussing or some of the tools, you can find us at infosec underscore podcast. Thanks, and we'll meet up again next week.